0: Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. Welcome to the 94th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. Today, I am really excited to bring you an episode featuring a guest that I've long followed on my own clean energy journey, starting back in my days at Appalachian State University in a number of my sustainable technology classes. The guest on today's episode has long been a thought leader in the sustainability world, and continues to bring his expertise in grassroots organizing to bear in order to tackle some of the biggest challenges standing in the way of reaching emissions reduction targets at the international, national, and state levels. But before we talk to our guest, a few short updates to share. If you're here in North Carolina, we need your voice to help protect our state building code council's ability to move forward with consideration of updated energy codes. On our last episode, we covered all of the updates taking place at the intersection between the Building Code Council and now the General Assembly here in North Carolina. So, if you're interested in all of that background, go ahead and give that episode a listen. But for today's ask, the General Assembly has passed House Bill 488, which would prevent our state's Building Code Council from updating the codes that set the minimum standards for energy efficiency until at least 2026, but potentially 2031. This is incredibly important because North Carolina is essentially operating on extremely outdated 2009 codes, which is leading to new homes constructed in the state that cost more in utility bills for homeowners and are less resilient. In fact, updating our codes to the 2021 standards could save new homeowners nearly $350 a year in utility costs, and now the General Assembly is trying to prevent that with House Bill 488. The latest update is that Governor Cooper vetoed 488 but the General Assembly is considering a veto override vote sometime in the near future. We need your help to reach out to your state representative asking that they sustain Governor Cooper's veto today. It's official. Making Energy Work 2023 is on the calendar for November 2nd and 3rd in Raleigh, And just like last year, it'll be an opportunity to gather with many of your clean energy colleagues from across the southeast to catch up on the latest clean energy policy and regulatory happenings. Registration is now open, and sponsorship opportunities are going quick. So if you're interested in learning more about this year's conference, visit makingenergywork.com. Support for the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast comes from Solarize the Triangle, a community-based group purchasing program for solar energy and battery storage. Available to Triangle area homeowners, businesses, and nonprofit organizations. More information, along with free evaluation appointments, through September 30th, can be found at SolarizeTheTriangle.com. Whoop. With that, let's jump into today's episode.
1: Hey. Clean energy. Whoop.
0: our next guest needs very little introduction as i'm sure most if not all of our listeners have read seen or heard from him over the years as a leading voice in the sustainability and clean energy movement our guest has authored more than 20 books over the years starting with his first the end of nature in addition he regularly authors work in the new yorker and rolling stone and serves as a Schumann Distinguished Scholar in Environmental Studies at Middlebury College. Along with being a fellow at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, he's been recognized with numerous honors and awards, including the Gandhi Peace Award in 2013, and was recognized by Foreign Policy Magazine as one of the 100 most important global thinkers. He's successfully founded multiple organizations dedicated to tackling environmental-related issues, including 350.org, and more recently, Third Act. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Bill McKibben to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Bill, welcome to the pod. Hey, what a pleasure to be with you, Matt. So to get started, can you tell us just a little bit more about one of your newer ventures, Third Act, and what the organization has has set out to do?
1: Well, Third Act is exclusively for old people like me, Matt. You'll get there someday. But um, look, you know, I've been working on climate change for a very long time, since I was in my 20s. I wrote the First book about all this back in the 1980s. Um, And I've worked largely with young people all the way through. We founded 350.org with seven college students and and these divestment campaigns and working with Greta and the Sunrise movement and on and on. And it's all great. Just what you would expect since young people are going to bear the brunt of this. I'll be dead before the worst kicks in. But Um, I did get tired of hearing people say to me, oh, it's up to the next generation to solve this problem. That seemed unfair, uh, and it also seemed impractical, since for all their intelligence and energy and idealism, young people lack the structural power to make the change that we need on the scale that's required in the time that we have. If you look around for people who have structural power coming out their ears. It's also those of us who now have hair coming out our ears. Uh, You know, there are 70 million of us over the age of 60 in this country. That's larger than the population of France. We have outsized political power because we all vote. There's no known way to stop old people from voting. We ended up with most of the country's financial assets, fair or not, boomers in the silent generation about 70% of the financial assets. So if you want to take on Washington or Wall Street or your state capital or anything else, it helps to have some people with hairlines like mine. And that's who we've been assembling at Third Act and it's going really well. Uh, uh, There are lots and lots of people who are determined not to be a generation that leaves behind a planet worse than the one they found.
0: And you mentioned you know, your your long career in this space dedicated uh, to tackling many of the issues that we're going to talk about here. Uh, You know, I I can say for myself, uh, a lot of your work has been uh, very formative for me in my own uh, career development, starting at Appalachian State in their sustainable technology program, as many of your work uh, had been has been taught in a number of programs. And I know a couple of years ago you were a speaker at the Appalachian Energy Summit. You know, in your remarks as well, you, you mentioned Washington, D.C. So let's let's talk about the, the current federal administration, uh, which has set a U.S. goal of achieving a carbon-free power sector by 2035 and net zero emissions economy-wide by 2050. And then here in North Carolina, we also have statewide goals to reduce carbon emissions by 50 percent economy-wide by 2030 and 70 percent within the electricity sector by 2030. Is this enough, both at the federal and state level? And do you think that these tra- targets are, are achievable?
1: Well, nothing's ever enough because we waited so long to get started. We let things get so out of hand that the planet is now heating desperately. I mean, we've just come through the hottest days for the last 125,000 years on this planet. Um, so, we, you know, there's never any target that's <laughs> good enough, but we're capable I think of hitting those targets hitting better targets because we have the necessary technology. We didn't have it 20 years ago. We didn't really know what we were going to do. We knew we had to stop burning coal and oil and gas, but the alternatives were too expensive to for to be adopted on mass. That's no longer true. The scientists and engineers have given us a great gift. The most important energy fact in the world is that the price of sun and wind and batteries has dropped 90% in the last decade, which means that there's no longer any financial or technological obstacle. That doesn't mean there aren't obstacles. Inertia is a big obstacle in anything and hard to overcome. But even worse here is ongoing vested interest. Um, Ongoing vested interest on the part of the fossil fuel industry and on the part of utilities uh, that are too often, in both cases, just um, mindlessly and amorally stuck in trying to preserve their business model, even at past the point when scientists have patiently explained that doing so will wreck the planet.
0: And, and to that point, you know, we, we've seen now that solar is one of the lowest cost forms of energy available on the market. And, and you mentioned utilities really stuck in this 100-year-old business model, especially in markets like North Carolina, where we have uh, a utility that's been given a franchise agreement from the state to be a regulated monopoly. And so you had mentioned in a recent interview with Estra Klein about some of the challenges that we're seeing play out here in North Carolina. and and. That the utility, for example, is advocating for expensive and maybe not yet commercially viable or financially feasible technologies in lieu of commercially available, lower cost renewables. So, how do we overcome the utility's appetite for large capital expenditures that favor their shareholders over ratepayers?
1: There's no way to overcome it except with organizing and pushing hard. Some of that work is technical and hard. Um, At Third Act, we're training up people all across the country to go interact with their state public utility commissions. These PUCs, as you know, and they're called different things in different states, are um, incredibly important. They're almost always captured by their local utility. And they're protected by this penumbra of boringness that keeps anyone from wanting to have anything to do with them. And that's what we've got to pierce, and people are. Um, so there'll be lots more people, you know, testifying, showing up, taking notes, doing what they can. But that only works if it's coupled with big, broad mobilizations of people demanding change. And that's what we have to keep building. When we do it, we get progress. Look, the the reason we have an IRA is because organizers did a great job to make climate change the number one issue for according to pollsters in the Democratic primaries last time around. That meant that Joe Biden had to sit down with a you know, committee with AOC and Varshini Prakash and others and listen to them outline plans for a Green New Deal and adopt some form of that, uh, which, you know, once it was watered down by Joe Manchin, became the Inflation Reduction Act. It's Far from perfect, we could spend half an hour enumerating its defects, but it's something. And it only happened because of that mass organizing push. We need more of that all the time um, because the fossil fuel industry and their allies in utilities never seem to change. You would think that the utilities would be smarter than this. I mean, in places where almost by accident, we ended up with a lot of solar power, Texas being the great example. Um, that solar power is the that's the thing that got Texas through this mammoth heat wave that we record-setting heat wave earlier this year. The grid held up even as, you know, natural gas plants went down, nuclear plants went down. There was enough solar on the grid. But the 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 fossil fuel industry spent the year in the Texas legislature trying to get them to Prop up oil and gas and discourage renewables. These guys are amoral at best. And their ability to keep doing this is what we have to somehow break. And I think utilities are, you know, utilities, what they like too often is control. So, you know, Duke would rather have uh, the prospect of, you know, uh, a bunch of small nuclear power plants sometime in the future, which would be under their control than. Let uh, a thousand flowers bloom right now in the solar and wind markets, um, which would be less under their control. That's that is in, in an emergency like the one we're in. That is amoral at best.
0: So speaking of the PUCs and and, and solar, uh, you know, I heard that you had recently mentioned some dissatisfaction with the the PUC in, in Vermont having denied a solar farm due to aesthetics reason. Uh, You know, that's an issue that we're increasingly running into here in the Southeast, where, you know, certain groups with an anti-renewables agenda are sowing opposition within local communities, leading to more challenges, including moratoria on development. And this is despite the fact that these facilities are bringing thousands of dollars in new tax revenue, uh, hundreds of new jobs, and, uh, you know, relatively speaking, consume a very small amount of land compared to other redevelopment activities, so, what is your response to these challenges, and are there ways that you foresee being impactful strategies to overcoming this opposition?
1: So, one way is to really maximize the, um, the return to communities. Uh, one of the reasons this went so well in Denmark and Germany was because local communities often owned the assets that they were putting up, and that makes a lot of sense. We're going to be hard to do that on the scale we need in the time that we have, but anything that we can do to increase the return to local communities really helps. Second thing is um, to help people continue to understand uh, the issues here. So, for instance, where I live in Vermont, um, where I mean, part of it's just, we talked about inertia before. There are times when I think the state motto of Vermont should be change anything you want once I'm dead, you know, that attraction, that, that sort of attraction to the status quo is understandable. But it's also ruinous right now. Where I live, we uh, you, solar farms need to go uh, sometimes in agricultural fields and farm fields. Farmers are often for this because they can get a good steady return, not something that farmers necessarily usually enjoy. But other people are rightly sometimes worried that we're going to compromise our ability, say, to produce food. But truthfully, that's not what happens on an awful lot of farm fields in America. Iowa has the richest topsoil in the world. Sixty percent of the corn that gets grown there gets turned into gasoline. They're, you know, And you could produce the same amount of automobile mileage On a tiny fraction of that land, if you put up solar panels and connected them to EVs, in America, a cornfield is an inefficient solar collector that you have to put large amounts of nitrogen on to make it grow, which then washes into the Gulf of Mexico and creates a huge dead zone. You know, Um, a solar panel is a way to give farmers good income it produces a crop we desperately need more of electrons and it gives the land underneath it a rest so you know 25 years from now if we've built affordable small nuclear reactors if we have fusion power if we're doing deep geothermal whatever the hell it is that the next generation of people come up with fine, we can take them down. And then that land is in much better shape than if we'd spent the intervening quarter century piling pesticides on it. So I I think that people need to think a little more clearly and a little less uh, uh, romantically about their landscape sometimes. These are working landscapes. We need them doing work that we actually need done. The crop we're short of is electrons.
0: And... Something that you mentioned that I, I wanted to key into a little bit is is you know making sure that as we're developing these solar farms, right, we're reinvesting in those communities and looking at structures that allow landowners and and the local community to have a piece of of the pie when it comes to the the development of those those solar farms. One of the most important questions that comes to mind for me is how do we ensure that this clean energy transition is equitable? I'm particularly thinking about you know all aspects of the supply chain from resource extraction, to manufacturing, to permitting, and siting of all of these renewable assets.
1: You got to work it at it every phase of it, you know, and people are, people are, uh, there's a lot of work going on to see if we can't make cobalt mining and lithium mining more humane and more environmentally sound. I was just doing some writing about that in uh, uh, New Yorker last week. It's not perfect and it's not going to be perfect, but it's, <laughs> it's, going to be on a hell of a lot smaller scale than mining coal which kills the hundreds of miners every year uh, uh, not to mention destabilizing the climate not to mention killing nine million people a year who die from breathing the particulates that are the uh, 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 byproduct of fossil fuel combustion that's one death in five on this planet so from that all the way up to you know what your county, Zoning board, you know, is getting in return for uh, solar panels or wind turbines in terms of school taxes or whatever it is. All of that we've got to work on, but we've got to work on it while we do this. We 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 do not because we wasted 30 years letting the fossil fuel industry uh, uh, lie to us about climate change. We no longer have the luxury of any kind of time. We've got to be. You know, we've got to be building this ship as we sail it.
0: And, you know, one thing, too, that you mentioned a little bit earlier is the importance of, of mass organizing uh, in this movement moving forward. So what do you think are going to be some of the critical pieces for us to, to organize around in order to be able to hit some of those emissions reduction targets that, that we talked about at the beginning of the conversation?
1: We've got two basic tasks. One is to keep saying no to the fossil fuel industry blocking every new pipeline and fracking well and lng terminal that we can and people have done a good job about working on that as hard as they can sometimes we win the keystone pipeline sometimes we lose the mvp pipeline no it's not over yet but we got to fight those fights the other half of the organizing challenge is the new one organizing neighborhoods communities people house by house to switch out the billion machines that we need to switch out in order to make the change we have to have there's 140 million homes and apartments in america that's a lot of places where you have to win this battle you know and that's going to take organizing too of a different kind i mean for instance if you want to do rooftop solar which we should be doing lots and lots of along with other kinds of solar um It's way cheaper if you can do 20 houses in the same neighborhood the same week. You know, you you have to pull up the truck once, you know, and all the more, more cheaper if the neighborhood association can basically have done the marketing beforehand so they don't have to pay the salesman to go door to door doing this. That's the kind of work that people are beginning to roll out at places like Rewiring America that take advantage of this money in the IRA. If we can implement that at speed and scale, then we'll really start getting somewhere.
0: And what would be your advice for folks listening in from North Carolina and the Southeast Is the best ways to help accelerate the transition to cleaner technologies?
1: Find other people working on this and join in with them. Americans are such hyper-individuals that our first impulse is always to think about our own car, our own roof. The most important thing an individual can do is be a little less of an individual and join together with others in movements large enough to matter. That's why we started 350.org or Third Act or the Sunrise Movement or WARN or Interfaith Power and Light or all the other places where you can go and have a outsized impact on policy. Remember, most people in this country in this world are apathetic about these things. That means that change won't happen unless we force it, but it also means that you can have a really outsized impact if you join together with others because you you know, if you show up at the PUC meeting, there'll be plenty of utility lobbyists there, but there's not likely to be big crowds of other people demanding that we don't take action. You can make a big difference.
0: Well, Bill, I really do appreciate you taking the time to join us on, on this episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, and I encourage folks listening in to, to, to explore more and, and learn more about Third Act with Bill McKibben and, and that organization. And again, as as Bill mentioned at the end of his his comments, you know, find others that are like minded in this space advocating for change. And the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association here in North Carolina is a is a great way to start, especially when you're looking at uh utility commission engagement and as we look to update the next version of our carbon plan and setting that plan in place to reach those those carbon emissions reduction targets for the state. So Bill, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Squeaky Clean podcast.
1: Next. Thank you for all your good work and uh, keep it up And everybody else. And if you 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 run across some uh, old codgers such as myself, send them our direction at Third Act.
0: Overall, it was evident in my conversation with Bill that despite the fact that we've had some real challenges and hurdles to clear in our pursuit of decarbonizing the economy, momentum is on our side in terms of where the market is moving. The question is, though, are we doing enough fast enough, and how do we ensure that some of the biggest challenges we're going to continue to encounter over the next couple of years, including topics like transmission, utility deference towards expensive capital projects, and misguided opposition don't stand in the way of achieving our 2030 and 2050 targets? If you're interested in learning more about Bill's current work with Third Act, make sure to visit thirdact.org. This episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is brought to you by Solarize the Triangle, a community-based group purchasing program for solar energy and battery storage. The program now has more than 12 governments participating here in the Triangle area, allowing homeowners from all across the region to participate and see significant savings on the cost of installation via the power of group purchasing. So if you're interested in installing solar on your home, there's never been a better time. Visit SolarizeTheTriangle.com for more information today. And on that note, you know the deal. Let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout at Matt Abel for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one liners. And episode 94 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy. North Carolina. All right, that's it. See y'all later.